Hello and welcome to the Books That Built Me. In this special episode, I'm going to talk to Sarah Churchwell, Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities and Professorial Fellow in American Literature at the School of Advanced Study, University of London. <laughs> Boom! I've got it. <laughs> I keep thinking I need to work out an acronym or something because it is the longest title. <laughs> and a, what a, that's, there's no, <laughs> nobody on the planet with a job title as good it's as that. It's spectacularly pompous. I, <laughs> I, I used to call myself Intergalactic Creative Empress because, oh, I, because I felt... I felt that job title inflation had gone yeah. had gone crazy oh, like in my that. last job. But, yeah. um, no, I kind of want to just be a professor at large. Professor at large is yes. Well, that's a, that's a good magazine term, isn't it? Editor, <laughs> yeah, editor exactly. At large. I don't know what that really means. Really. But I want to be a professor at large. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a, that's the thirty minute podcast <laughs> on what at large means in a magazine, you know, magazine or university. Um, so Sarah Churchwell, also also a broadcaster and author of Careless People. Uh, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of the Great Gatsby, and my first ever books that built me guest. Yay, that's true. It's very nice to see you. And the reason nice we are to talking back. today is because there's a very beautiful new Everyman Library edition of The Ambassadors by Henry James, for which Sarah has written the introduction. And also, I'm not even sure what I'm going to say, well, I'm allowed to say this, but your next your next book it will be on Henry James. Yeah, that's right. Um, so to kick off, um, now that I've got over the... <laughs> the tangle of the my title. title. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about about the ambassadors. It's one of James's later later mm. works. And, mm. uh, it's actually the book that kicks off his so called late phase. Um, so he wrote it in 1900. It came out in 1903. James died in 1916. And um, it's the it's the first of the three great late novels. Um, the next two being The Wings of the Dove and The Golden Bowl. So those are, those are sort of seen as his great achievement by a lot of people in the and the late novels. The Ambassadors. Um, was James's own favorite of his of his works. Um, he wrote a preface to the Ambassadors um, a couple years after it came out, in which he said um, he thinks it, it, he thought it was the finest all round of his productions. And I first came to it some years ago, knowing that he had said that it was the the best of his books. And I'd always struggled with James, and uh, as many many people do. I mean, he he is a challenging author. And so I, I, I sort of set myself this test when I was a graduate student and I really hadn't liked James. And I was, I mean, I liked some of it, but it, it, I just didn't love him the way that people who love mm. him, love him. And I couldn't figure out why not. Anyway, so I, I sort of set myself this final challenge, which was, well, he said the ambassadors was the best of his own book. So I'm going to take him at his word. And if I don't like the book that he says is the best of his own books, then screw it. You know, James and I are not yeah. for each other. And this, this relationship is not <laughs> going to work out. It's um, great if American literature can, can do without he's, Exactly. He's just going to have to... Exactly. Professorial fellow of American literature. He's just going to have to make it on his own. Um and so I, so I did, and, and I did go in with that kind of spirit of, of you know, almost like defiance or defensiveness. Anyway, he completely won me over. I totally loved The Ambassadors, and I've always loved The Ambassadors ever since. And it was the book that, that opened the door to James for me and made me see things in him that I had not seen in the other books. And now that I do see in the other books, once, he, once I kind of became aware of them, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. Um, the the primary uh, one that I'm thinking of is his humor. I actually think The Ambassador is a hilarious book, but a lot of people don't associate James with humor. Yeah, they think of him as a very serious true. writer. I mean, um, I read, and I really want to come back to that actually, mm. because when I was reading your preface, I thought actually that's not mu- that's he's. I don't find him funny. Mm. Yeah, no, I, but I find him wonderful. Yeah, but tell us. So tell yeah. us a little bit about what what's The Ambassadors about. Yeah. So. The, the good thing about James is even though there's all these words, the plots are really never that complicated. <laughs> so The Ambassadors is uh, the story of an American man in the uh, latter part of the 19th century, uh, sort of, you know, late Victorian age, and he's 55 years old. He's lived in this small New England town. It's fairly pur- puritanical, fairly, co- very conservative. As I said, it's Victorian era. And he is uh, a widower. He's engaged to marry a woman named Mrs. Newsom who is the kind of uh, um, local, she's the, she's the sort of most powerful woman in town. So she's also a widow and she has a fair amount of money and she runs this magazine that um, our hero, who's called Lambert Strether, edits. So as the story opens, Lambert Strether has been set, sent rather by Mrs. Newsom to Paris because Mrs. Newsom's son, Chad, 
has been lounging around Paris. He's gone on a he's gone on a grand tour, and he's supposed to and he's supposed to kind of it was basically he's supposed to have his gap year, and he's never come home, right? He's so fallen into the so flesh pots. He's fallen into the flesh pots of Paris, and there's certain that he's that he's in the coils. He's fall, he's got in the tangles of some decadent Parisian woman, and some well not just decadent debauched. So <laughs> that he's that he's in this kind of tawdry sordid affair. And Lambert Strather has been sent to Paris to rescue Chad, basically, <laughs> and bring him back home to New England where he belongs, back to his puritanical ancestors. Now, so far, so cliched. And that's part of the, the joke, actually. That's part of the fun that James is having, is that that was already a cliche by 1900, the idea that you would go to Paris and that you would... And that's the whole point, right? Is that that's what they assume, is that this is what's happened to Chad. He says that, doesn't he? He goes, I'm... I'm uh... I'm afraid it must be Paris if he's an American. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Paris is where you'll go, and the and the, the you know you'll see the light, and you'll have this kind of bohemian adventure, and you'll and you'll get you know seduced by Paris and by Europe and by all of sexy the, ladies. You know, and exactly how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris, right? I mean, so <laughs> that's the, that's the idea. And so, lovely Lambert Strether, um, who's possibly my favorite character in all of fiction. Um, goes to Paris. He is an incredibly well-meaning man. And he goes to Paris to rescue Chad. And lo and behold, he discovers that Chad is not lost. Chad's doing awfully well. And in fact, as far as Lambert Strether is concerned, who never liked Chad Newsom, who also always thought that Chad Newsom was a bit of a cad and 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 rough and, and kind of stupid and rough around the edges and very uncultured. Chad Newsom has been incredibly improved by his Parisian adventure. And um, and he's surrounded by all of these cultivated, elegant people. And, um, and Struthers a bit bewildered by this. And he, he realizes he needs to meet the woman in question. So there is, there is this woman called Madame de Vionnet. And is she the femme, femme fatale? That, she seems um, to be a femme fatale. And, so, and that's what Struthers assumes. So it's a, it's a comedy. It's a kind of comedy of assumptions. Hmm. And one of the ways in which, one of the things we need to remember about this uh, moment in time, both in which James is writing and that he's writing about, is that it was still an era in which you couldn't ask direct questions. You couldn't just say, hey, are you guys having an affair? It was not explicit. Yeah. It was not an explicit age. It was unthinkable that you would ask such a direct question. Literally unthinkable. And the Still comedy depends on that. if you're British, you can Yeah, exactly. So just think <laughs> uber British, right? So just really can't ask these, one just does not ask these kinds of questions. So how well do you know exactly exactly so it's all very euphemistic and of course the comedy of euphemism is that it leads to all kinds of misunderstandings um and that's exactly what happens so that's the basic setup and what happens is that when strether meets so basically strether assumes that madame de vionnet must be this kind of tawdry literally a woman of the streets by definition because she's having an extramarital affair and in in the late 19th century if you're a woman who's having an extramarital affair, by definition, is a low woman. So, But he assumes then the kind of chain of associations that she must also be vulgar and coarse and probably, you know, a streetwalker or something. So he's, he has all, he, he assumes that she's low, quote-unquote, in he every sense. That American puritanical yeah. It's a binary. He's in a binary system, right? So it's a Madonna whore system. And so he thinks that if she's a whore, she's a whore. And so that's all you're going to get. And so then he meets Madame de Vionnet, and to his, to his absolute bewilderment, she's elegant and refined find and cultured and exquisite and dazzling intellectually and personally and her manners are impeccable and and he can't wrap his head around that i mean he literally can't get his head around that and so blow me life is more complicated it's more complicated people, people are, more are more complicated than i thought but the thing is is that he's not actually stupid that what happens is that is that he what he gets trapped up in is, is his own generosity mm-hmm. And it's true that, and I say this in the introduction, he is caught in, in a category error, the, the one we were just talking about, that if you're low and quote unquote low in one thing, you must be low in everything. And that is a kind of category error. But so he just, so he, he, he concludes, um, so when I say concludes, it's fairly early on. His first conclusion, he makes a series of wrong conclusions. But one of his first wrong conclusions is that he decides that given how exquisite Madame de Vionnet is and given how improved Chad seems to be, he decides that they must have nobly renounced their love for each other and that that's what's made Chad a much better person. So he's not stupid. It's not as if it hasn't occurred to him that they're having an affair. He just can't get his head around the idea that they could be having an affair and that wouldn't have debased both of them. That's the problem that he's having. And so, and the, and the, and the, the, the other problem is that all of Chad's friends that he encounters, he really likes them too. And what James does as part of the fun of it is that he keeps kind of sending people away. So there are a lot of deferrals and that, you know, Madame de Vionnet goes on a trip and then we have all of this kind of speculation about what is she like. And then, but meanwhile, Strether is meeting this circle of cultured expatriate Americans in Paris who he really, really likes. And, and basically he realizes that he has missed his life. He's 55 years old and he's kind of let life pass him by. And 
what in lesser hands would be a really tacky midlife crisis. And, he, you know, in a modern novel, he'd go off and get a Porsche and have an affair and everything. But James is so much subtler than that and so much more complicated than that. And Struthers not the kind of man who could do that. He's a Victorian 55-year-old Puritan. That's not in his nature. So he has the kind of midlife crisis that somebody like him would have, which is this very, very beautiful coming to terms with the fact that he hasn't lived the, his life the way that he wanted to, but also with his having to reconcile what he learns and what he really learns in Paris about, as you know, you joked at the beginning and quite rightly, oh my God, people are more complicated than that. As he learns how complicated people really are and as he learns how complicated he is, he has to figure out, he has to make what for him is a profound moral choice about what kind of life he is prepared to leave mm. with what time he has left. And what to me is so beautiful about the novel is that all of the people around him, one of the things I love about that, I actually get really increasingly um, fed up with novels that just rely on people being bad in order to make plots happen. Yes. Um, because in my experience, maybe I've lived a very, very sheltered life. It's, you know, maybe I'm the Lambert Strether in this conversation. But I... What does that make me? I, 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 think I'm, I don't know. But I'm the I guess. <laughs> they don't have an affair, so that would be fine. Uh, anyway, so I'm getting I'm suddenly like getting myself in a tangle. So you're the Lambert Strether. So... I personally have not encountered that many people in my life that I would consider bad or malevolent. No, exactly. It's not realistic. People are, people are very nuanced. Yeah, and, but I think in my most people mean well. You know, mm. most people do their best and they mean well and there are plenty of kind people and there aren't, but it's, it's hard to get a plot going around that. But so that's what's so brilliant about James is that the whole comedy is that basically everybody loves Strether so much they don't want to disillusion him. So they all know exactly what's going on and they think it's adorable that he doesn't know what's going on and yet they kind of don't want to be the people people to brutally strip away the veils of you know and so they're like well I don't want to be the one who tells them so you can kind of imagine them all you know in another room going are you going to be the one who tells them and be like I don't want to be the one who tells them so they all and they all think it's wonderful because they all what they can see is that he's trapped in his own generosity and that's what James talks about in the preface to this novel a great deal is that what uh and and it's a it's a phrase that that the Strether's closest friend in the novel um is a character called Maria Gostry and um, Miss Gostry basically falls in love with Strether. And, and she says things like that he has treasures of imagination. And, and that's what that's James curious. says. It's beautiful. And James, James basically says in the, in the preface that the thing about Strether and the reason that he loves Strether, and it's the reason that I love Strether, is that Strether has this great imaginative sympathy. And for me, what I find so touching about him, and I, and I, I wrote about this in, in, at some length in the introduction, it's really kind of what my introduction is about, is that Strether wants desperately to do the right thing. He's trying really, really hard mm. to be generous, to be sympathetic, to be kind. And all of the people around him are similarly trying to be kind, except for the Newsoms when they come barging in at the end of the book and they're not <laughs> I mean, interested she, in being kind. She sends, uh, <laughs> she she sends, sends the second, second round of ambassadors. Because, Paris, because Paris, exactly, Paris has sucked him in too. So <laughs> she, keeps sending, she keeps sending people off to Paris and they never come home again. So one of the jokes of the novel is that Mrs. Newsom, who's this very powerful character, actually never appears in the novel. Everybody's afraid of her, but she is. So one of James's little jokes is that she's never she's actually, never there. she's never there. But she, her, her presence nonetheless really, really registers. And so, yeah, so Struthers now kicking up his heels in Paris. And you could get a picture of Mrs. Newsom back in New England going, I can't believe this. Like, now what do I have? So she sends the next batch of ambassadors um, off to, to bring everybody home. And, and, and what happens is that it, it gets more and more complicated because there, there comes a question about what kind of obligation Chad might have to Madame de Vianney if they have been having an affair. And so th there's a much subtler moral dilemma than than the one that Strether thinks he's going to encounter, which is are they having sex or aren't they having yeah. sex? There's something much more complicated about, about one's obligation to other people that is actually what James is getting at. And Strether has a very uh, finely developed moral sense of one's obligation to other people and particularly one's obligation to people that one cares about. So to me, there's some, it's, a, it's a book about kind people trying to do kind things and tripping up all over themselves and actually, and, and there's all of this comedy that develops out of Strether's inability to ask a direct question. And so it actually becomes really, really funny. <laughs> it's comedy of assumptions. Yeah, yeah. It's a comedy so, of errors. Yeah. It's a comedy of errors. And, and, and it's drama. It's, I mean, I think there was a, there's a great uh, thing that Comtoy Bean wrote about it, which was the, dra the drama sits in the conflict between restriction and personal liberty yeah. and about the power to take a fresh approach yeah. to things yeah. I mean, on the kind of the bewilderment that comes with that. Absolutely. I mean, when James first submitted this novel to uh, his publishers in 1903, they said the subject matter was too racy for them 
to publish it because because the moral of the story was that Chad was better off in the affair <laughs> in Paris and that he was actually doing better. And the publisher was like, "We can't. That's well, that's, that's, not, that's the wrong message." <laughs> um, and um, as I say in the introduction, we're only a few decades after uh, Flaubert was put on trial for writing a book in which Emma Bovary dies because of her affair, and yet that was seen as so transgressive that you know the book was you know uh, uh, called obscene. So it's not that much later that James. So it, although also James, we said earlier that James is seen as a very serious writer. He's also, I think, now viewed as a conservative writer, but I don't think that's fair. And, and I think this book really does justice to what he calls a liberal imagination, mm-hmm. what it means to have a more progressive viewpoint. So this is about um, how it, it, it's a kind of precursor to sexual revolution. It is about what would it mean for a woman to be able to be sexually independent? What are the consequences of that? And what kind of moral system are you in in a society where the um, or, or rather how how? How do people in a society where their moral understanding is evolving, how do we, how do, how does it actually work? How do you change your own morals? How do you, the thing, the, the system, the value system you yeah. were raised in, you come to, you come to rethink that as an adult because you think it was too conservative and yet you can't throw all of it out. And that's kind of where Strether is. So I actually think it's a really, on a, on a more kind of philosophical or political level, it is a book about what will happen if there's a sexual revolution. And it is James seeing that women are getting more independent, under, and he is tremendously sympathetic to women. He's one of the great writers, of, uh, male writers, who is sympathetic to women. Unlike many male writers, he imagines that women are human beings. It's a really remarkable so leap, leap that he makes. I know, it's just extraordinary. Um, he thinks they're intelligent and rounded, and he doesn't think that they're just sexual objects. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, I had great female friendships. Yeah. So just when you were talking about um, this idea of the unlived life, which mm. I'd love to talk about a bit mm. more, I was thinking of The Age of Innocence. Mm. I, know, I mean, I know that's written 10 years after... 1926, isn't that? 1920. 2020. Yeah. Um, but that's that's all, that's also a, a yeah. novel in which the the life isn't the opportunity isn't seized. Isn't or seized. you're kind of aware that the opportunity. Well, it depends on how you read it. We should do. We'll do our next we one on the Age of Innocence, know, um, exactly. which I absolutely love as well. And of course, as as, as you're implying, we, we haven't said explicitly for those who aren't familiar with it. It was written by Edith Wharton, who was a close friend of of James's. And um, and indeed, the Age of Innocence kind of shows the Jamesian influence. I think to the good. I think he he yes, improved her novels. Um, yeah. You can and see how they get better. Incredible relationship, and the yeah. you know the seeds of those conversations, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth saying, and then I do think we should we should do a podcast about the Age of Innocence sometime because I have a I have a very firm view of that book that is that is at odds with the way a lot of people read it. And I think that one of the things that happens to Newland Archer in that book is that he it's it's not so much the unlived life as that the women around him manipulate him into making the wrong yeah. choice. Yeah, anyway, yeah, that's perhaps so, true. But that also is kind of sets a sense of more you know kind of the. Uh, of ambiguity around. Yeah, no, no, it's a much, it's much more complicated than that. I mean, yeah. it's really, no, we should do try and do that with Lionel Shriver, whose favorite, you know, it's her favorite book of all time. Well, I think we absolutely should because I've heard her talk. I was she, at her books that built you, me exactly because I disagree with her. Yeah. <laughs> so Lionel and I will go, we'll go mano a mano. <laughs> anyway, I've just pulled, pulled this really naughty off topic. Um, let's come. Let's well, let's come back to um, this idea of before we come back to the unlived life, which mm. is such a such a poignant actually mm. exciting speaking as somebody in middle age yeah well indeed <laughs> aren't we all <laughs> well we are anyway all the listeners won't be but we are yeah. um but i really want to come back to this idea of the that kind of that binary between mm. america and europe yeah and you know james hood's at this point lived i think 20 years in in, in 25 25 yeah. years in, so he's quite he's now quite immersed in yeah. european culture yeah but that's a theme that he explores. Well, he'd actually spent all of his life in Europe, but he'd been he'd been out of America for good for twenty five years. He had not returned. Uh, he didn't return to America between. Well, maybe he had, I think he had one trip um, when his parents died. But mm-hmm. basically, he hadn't been back very much between about eighteen eighty and nineteen o three. He was um, born in eighteen forty three. I think I should know that. I think it's eighteen forty three. I'm only writing a book about him. I should know what year he was born in, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that's right. Anyway, it's around the early eighteen forties. And so he had, uh, the first 40 years of his life, he had spent, and particularly the first 20 years of his life, he had spent on the continent. So his father took the uh, James family, of course, James's older brother, mm. William, the father of American psychiatry, psychology, um, a great philosopher. He's actually the person who coined the phrase stream of consciousness, which oh, a lot really? of people that's don't know. Oh, really? That's extraordinary. Yeah. 
And, um, and then, of course, his remarkable sister, Alice James, who wrote these amazing diaries. So they're three very, very uh, gifted and special uh, children. And Henry James Sr. was a crackpot, and he, uh, and he was just really a crackpot bonkers. of the first order. And, um, and, he, and he kind of marched the family all around Europe. So James grew up with a very continental education. Mm. They had kind of, you know, tutors when they could afford them. And, um, and, he, and he, so he was fluent in French and Italian. He, so he had a very uh, continental viewpoint as, from a very young age. Um, but it wasn't until he was an adult that he firmly settled in Europe, first in Paris and then quickly moved to London. And then he made London his home. And he lived in London, um, as I say, from about 1880 sure. until his death with only a couple of, of quick Rye. trips back to, and then Rye. But he was, um, so yeah, he, in 1898, he bought Lamb House in Rye, but he kept going back and forth yeah. between London and and, uh, and Sussex. And then at the end of his life, he went back to London. And he was a, he was a great a great um, visitor in people's houses. I he was. He would turn up and then stay for six weeks. Yeah, exactly. He, he did like a, a good country house party, <laughs> James. <laughs> Sorry, I had a good dinner party. Off topic. So this, this cultural idea of the, of, of setting up the binary between America yeah. And well, that became his great theme, right? So his first major novel was called The American, mm-hmm. and it was about an American abroad. And, his, and but see, the thing that's important to remember is now that sounds like a cliche, but James is the person who basically invented that cliche. Even before Twain yeah. did Innocence Abroad, he basically, he takes the idea of the American innocent abroad, and that becomes his great theme. And now it's, you know, it's a it's a stereotype, but he invented it. So we have to, it, it doesn't yeah. really exist before. He owns it. Um, he does. And he does it better and than he anybody. Plays it and makes it incredibly nuanced. And exactly. And, and it gets more and more complicated. So his first book is called The American. And his second book, and not really, it's not really his first book, but his kind of first proper book. It's about his third novel. Um, was called The American. And it was the first one that got any real notice. Um, Roderick Hudson was proper. Well, so he had this first book that nobody cares about that he kind of disowned and didn't want to, you know, it was a really... The first pancake. Yeah, exactly. The Apprentice work. And then a book called Robert Hudson, and then I think The American was next. And then after The American, he wrote a book called The Europeans, which was about Europeans in America. So that so you see a theme emerging, right? Um, and, yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Mr. James, for pointing out. Exactly. I, I see what you're doing here. Um, and then gradually, as he, as he left America behind, he also left American settings and American themes behind. So, you know, he wrote The Bostonians, which is set in Boston, and it wasn't as if he never wrote about America again. But often, 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 he returned to this great theme of Americans in Europe and what happened when they were, you know, when their eyes were opened. So the portrait of a lady is Mm. the, is the uh, first really great one, um, which is 1881. And that's, you know, Isabel Archer, the young woman abroad uh, who, who gets kind of, you know, trapped by these, um, by these kind of, uh, speaking of seduced by the fleshpots pairs, she doesn't, she gets, uh, but she gets trapped by these very, well, they are kind of debauched, but they're very, they're, they're uh, what's the word I'm looking for? One of, and this is the ambassador as well, one of James's themes is about the Americans who don't understand European deceit. Um, yeah. that they're, they're not good at reading, you know, that they, as, as the people sophist- here would the say, sophistry yeah. the kind of- and that, and the, because they're, we're a direct, we're still a direct people. Um, we take things at face value. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's of a piece with the idea that Americans don't have a sense of irony. Although anybody who thinks that Americans don't understand irony need to read James because James is a master of irony. Um, they're they're incredibly ironic. Well, books. I could be really mean and say that he learned that by living in Europe. So you could, just, I suppose. Oh, no, I, just, yeah, I suppose. I suppose. There are an awful lot of. I'm not mean. I mean yeah, no, it's 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 possible. Uh, you're right. It's a uh, it's a, it's an unanswerable I have, quandary. I many Americans who are, a, who are masters of irony. Yeah. I mean, you're. I like to you're think I have a sense of irony. <laughs> But you're right, it may all just come from Europe. So maybe it comes to us via James, uh, uh, but it's from Europe. No. Who knows? When I when I said I'm fine, you've never taken me at face value. <laughs> no, 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 no. I know, I know better than that now. I've lived here long enough. But so, um, yeah, but so he... Sorry, I was I completely lost what I was going to say. It was about... No, but it was about Americans abroad. And then... Um, Anyway, I don't know. It'll come back to us. Yeah, we could take that bit out of it. We can, we can, <laughs> we can, we can go back, 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 back from I think I always think that with podcasts, you should, they, they probably shouldn't be edited because then it gives this false impression that people, you know, that nobody ever loses their train of thought. Oh, and yeah, then no, people exactly. are listening like, do these people never lose their train of thought? And I'm sitting there going, of course I lost my train of thought. It just got edited out. <laughs> people are making, I'm in the business of making me look good. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm a terrible editor so and I kind of, you know, drag us off down one, one thought. Come back to another. So let's, so let's. Oh, it was write. the unlived life. That the was unlived, what you wanted. Yeah. To, so we're just want to get into the unlived life. There's this is really, really beautiful piece that actually is in the beginning of your introduction in his notebook, and I wonder mm. if you if you wanted to 
Yeah, well, right. I should, shall I set it up for you? So, um, so this is, um, James kept notebooks where he would, you know, jot down the ideas for his novels and, and he called it the germ of the novel, you know, the seed. And what inspired the ambassadors was, a, was an anecdote. Oh, most of his novels were inspired by anecdotes. And um, he had this, this tremendous imagination and somebody would just tell him a little story as they're, you know, having tea and he would, and this whole 120,000 word novel would, you know, unfold in his brain. It's just incredible. So this one was inspired by a story that he was told about a friend of his, a guy called William Dean Howells, who was himself a writer and an editor, who was about James's age. And James, uh, sorry, Howells had gone to Paris um, because his son was studying there. And he was at a, a garden party. And he was about 50 um, at the time. And he, and you know, Howells was a successful guy. He was a magazine editor and a writer, and, and um, but he lived this quiet life in New England. And... Um, Anyway, so he was at this garden party uh, in, in Paris, and he was talking to a younger writer named Jonathan Sturgis, and Sturgis is the one who passed on this story to James. So Sturgis told James that he was at this garden party, and he, he encountered William Dean Howells, and Howells suddenly burst out and said to Sturgis, you, you don't, you're young, live your life. Live. Just don't, what, I don't care what you do, whatever you do, just live your life. It's a mistake not to. So there's a sense that Howells had, you know, come to Paris and suddenly realized that life had passed him by. Mm. And so James wrote down this really beautiful little speech as he remembered Sturgis rendering what Howells had said to him. And so that's what this is. And this is the inspiration for the ambassadors. Um, oh, you are young. You are young. Be glad of it. Be glad of it and live. Live all you can. It's a mistake not to. It doesn't so much matter what you do, but live. This place makes it all come over me. I see it now. I haven't done so. And now I'm old. It's too late. It has gone past me. I've lost it. You have time. You are young. Live. And James said, um, he said, what is there in the idea of too late? And mm. that also was his, uh, his kind of germ for this novel, um, that idea of belatedness. And one of the, the, the unlived life is, is one of James's great themes. And he, he plays it out in different ways. So in the ambassadors, it is the uh, literally an unlived yeah. life for the person who has kind of failed to live their life fully and, or and to the hilt. Realized this is the epiphany in, yeah. in coming to Paris. Yeah, exactly, and that and that suddenly you know the scales fall from your eyes and you realize that you know that you haven't you you, you haven't seized your chance and and as um, Howell says in this or really it's James saying it but. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, just do something. Make sure that whatever you do, you do it with gusto and just do it. You or know? live with regret. Um, yeah, exactly. And the regret is of having done nothing, not that you did the wrong thing. Um, and that idea that, that life could pass you by and that might be your great regret is a theme that, that James plays out in various of his writings. So there's a really wonderful late story called The Beast in the Jungle where there's a, a, a character who is, um, he lives his whole life with this feeling that and he and he calls it the beast in the jungle that there this, this beast is going to spring on him one day something terrible is going to happen in his life and he has this overwhelming feeling that something terrible is going to happen this beast is going to spring and so he makes all of his choices about avoiding the beast in the jungle and he's always going on and on about the beast in the jungle and this terrible feeling of dread that he has that something terrible is going to happen to him and the person that he tells all this to is this very sympathetic woman who the reader realizes but the idiot protagonist doesn't realize is in love with him mm. she's also dying and he's unaware of it so he's totally oblivious and she's being incredibly sympathetic and listening to this narcissist go on and on and on <laughs> about how uh you know this terrible thing that's going to happen to him and then she dies and he realizes that the beast has sprung and that the terrible thing was that he never lived his life that he didn't marry her that he didn't that he didn't have a life and that he spent by trying to avoid his the, the terrible oh, thing yeah. that would happen and the, the terrible not, thing the terrible thing was the beast oh, had yeah. sprung the terrible thing is not living your life and James plays out the unlived life in, in various other ways there's a story called The Jolly Corner um, which really is his last great work which I'm very fond of a long short story which was inspired by James's uh, last uh, long extended visit back to America and he wrote a story inspired by his returning to his birthplace um, he was born in New York, actually. People think of him as a Bostonian, but he was actually born in New York and raised in New York. And um, his house was in Washington Square. And, of course, he of wrote course. A, a famous yeah. book called Washington Square. Um, and that, But that house had been demolished even in his lifetime. And he went back to New York and he couldn't believe that the there. house where he was born yeah. wasn't, wasn't there anymore. So he wrote a story inspired by that where a man like him, who had lived abroad for 25 years, comes back to America, but the house is there. 
And in the house, he encounters the ghost of the person he would have been if he had stayed in America for 25 years. Wow. So it's sort of like sliding doors, but the, but the, two, the two actually mm. confront each other. They have this almost violent, it is a violent confrontation. With, with the shadow self. With the shadow self. What would you have been? So the idea of the unlived life is one that James comes back to again and again. But it's in the ambassadors that he really just says that basic one of, you missed your chance. Yeah. And he didn't realize. I mean, the tragedy is he didn't doesn't realize that he had a child. Yeah, I mean, exactly. that, that life could have been different. Could have been different. See, why is it when? Why is it the preoccupying theme of of James? Do you well, think? it depends on. Sorry, it's it, a massive question. Yeah, exactly. It kind of depends on who you ask. Um, the, the standard take uh, on that, which I think there has to be some truth to, um, is that so you know, as I'm sure uh, your listeners will know, James never married. He was a bachelor all mm. of his life. He was probably celibate, although biographers argue about that. There are some extraordinary biographical stories that we can get into if you want to have some raunchy, little, the raunchy stories about James. I mean, it's actually quite extraordinary, but those have been fairly discredited, and, and most people think he was probably celibate. And similarly, most people think, although it's nobody knows for sure, um, but most people think that he was probably celibate because he was almost certainly gay. Yeah. And he lived in a time where he that wasn't possible. I mean, he actually knew Oscar Wilde. He was a... Uh, um, you know, they, they had plays open at the same time, and um, and he was in London when the Oscar Wilde trial happened, and he was horrified by it, of course. And so, and and he was he was actually criticized at the time by some of his gay friends. So he had friends who were gay, yeah. and nobody was really out, but the way that Wilde was out, like there were people who were living, yeah, you know, living your, sexual in lives in their circle. They were living, you know, they were living gay lives, but they were just doing it discreetly. And he had plenty of male friends who were. Um, and he knew they were gay, and some of them criticized him for not being brave enough. Mm. Um, but he never admitted it. He never confessed it. He never said that he was. But certainly even his friends seemed to think that he was. And we know from um, his correspondence um, that he certainly had erotic attachments, and, and by which I mean he would write, uh, he would write to young men that he knew, not too young, he wasn't a creep, um, but <laughs> younger than him. Yeah. So he would write to kind of 20-year-old, 30-year-old, men in terms that are quite erotic so there's lots of reason- romantic friendships well but but very but in, very bodily yeah. <laughs> uh, so there would be lots of i long to hold you and i long to touch you and stuff that makes people think there was there was some desire in there somewhere um but the point is is that is that um you know we don't know we don't know uh to what degree he admitted these desires mm. to himself we don't know to what degree he may have ever acted on those desires he seems pretty clearly to have shut that down um, and to have just said, this is, this is not the way I'm going to live my life. And the, the kind of standard biographical take by his major biographer, Leon Adele, was that he kind of sublimated his desires into art. Hmm. And he was a, uh, you know, that he married his work, as it were. Um, and, and I think there's some, I think there's some, uh, my own take is that I think there's some psychological validity to that. He seems to, to, to my mind, he seems to have accommodated himself, um, but he was also subject to great depressions. So we, could, we might also ask how accommodated he was. Yeah. And he was lonely. And, and, and again, we know that because he would sometimes confess it. So there would be these kinds of... But I mean, he had all these friendships. He wasn't... But that, you know, on some fundamental mm. level, he was lonely. So the question then of the unlived life is, you know, becomes a very, very fraught one for somebody who isn't able to live the life they might have chosen if social circumstances were different. Yeah. So he was precluded from living the life that he might have lived by the laws of the time and the mores of the time. But, but also by his own psychology. By his own psychology, but it's hard, but that's where you get into a really speculative, so yeah, would Henry course. James have been Henry James if he had been born today? Um, well, no, and, and but he would be so different that you don't know, you know, so exactly, do yeah. we imagine him, you know, married with his lover in, you know, a loft in Soho writing novels? I mean, maybe, but that's so, un- yeah, it's so totally to different from exactly. who Henry James became. Yeah. That you can't imagine him, you know. It's just... What's your but what's your pet theory? Is it is it about the external pressure of the of the time, or is it something that's driven within within James that is that experience or seizing experience is kind of actually counterproductive yeah. to for the artist for the artist. Yeah. I think it's this is going to sound like a mealy mouthed answer, but I think it's both. I think it's all of the above, and I think with most people it is. You know, it's a combination of your own personality, your own inclinations. And then, you know, and then the social pressures. But bearing in mind that the social pressures in James's case were profound, right? Sure. These aren't just, yeah, you know, sort of, you know not, and, and there are laws against it. And it was, you know, so if you, if you had a remotely cautious 
kind of personality. personality. Exactly. Um, you know, it, it's easy to imagine that it just would have been unimaginable that you could pursue those desires. The, to me, the more interesting and totally unanswerable mm-hmm. question, but it remains an interesting one, is how much did he admit to himself? How conscious was he of what he wanted? Um, and that's, for instance, in, you know, in Comte Tobin's The Master, which is a wonderful novel, and, and uh, you know, I, I heartily recommend it to everyone, but I don't know that I agree with every kind of take he has on mm-hmm. James. And and one of the things he suggests there is that James was very consciously, you know, um, sitting around wishing that he could have affairs with footmen and things and, you know, country houses. And and I wonder, I wonder if he was in more of a state of denial than that, um, that about his own desire, if he if he if he didn't have to repress it a little bit harder and, and or not like that, that's, that's sorry, I've said that badly. That's not doing justice to, to the complexity yeah. of what I think probably happened. But it's more like that he, that's why you would use a word like accommodation, that he found an accommodation that he'd reconciled himself to being alone. And he, and not that he wasn't conscious of the fact that he desired men. I think he was a very, very smart man. He must have been. And he wasn't, you know, I don't think he was repressed. Um, and he was certainly aware. I mean, he made all kinds of jokes about sex. And yeah. he was, you know, certainly, he wasn't naive. Because um, he worked as a way of living, of living his life yeah. in the way that on his terms yeah. and that he was sort of and that he came to terms with that and so I'm not sure that 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 if you if you use words like if you think about him in terms of having come to terms with it of reconciled of being like something more than resigned to it something more positive than that of saying you know this was his choice and this was the way he chose to make his way through mm-hmm. you know a difficult to, to navigate a difficult path um, and yet also he was very very protective of what he called his genius he knew he was a genius and he made ruthless choices mm. about protecting that genius as many, many great writers do. And so, yes, I think that being alone was better for his art and he knew that. And that was a choice he was absolutely prepared yes. to, to make. So I don't see him sort of sitting around mooning over boys and wishing that he could have sex with no. them. I don't think that was what he spent a lot of his time doing. And, and you know, I mean, actually, the thinking about the 26 books that Bilton have done, the thing that comes out from every single writer I have ever talked to is that writing is a profoundly selfish act. If right. you're doing it, if you're doing it right, you, if you're doing it right, absolutely, you have to be ruthless and you have to come to some accommodation with the fact that you might have a family life yeah. or whatever you're going to hurt the but, people that are close actually, to you if you're, I mean, simply you know. by virtue of locking yourself in a room every day yeah. and saying don't bother me Henry stop James. talking yeah, to me exactly. go away go away yeah. <laughs> you know well, um, and, and so I think that, that whatever picture we imagine of James needs to uh, so as I say I'm, it's not so much that I'm disputing Toybean's mm. view as saying I think it's too one-sided and that was there some of the time but a lot of the time there was there. I don't think he was. You know, he was subject to yeah. depression, but there were also times where he was. You know, he, Edith Wharton talks about how funny he was. That he was always. That he had always had this merry twinkle in his eye. That he had this tremendous sense of fun. And he wouldn't have been in such a such a hit at the country houses. No, indeed, he was so, immensely popular. He was very witty. He was very funny. He was actually very. You don't bitchy. invite you. Don't invite people like yeah. that. I feel no. he's going to be a wet weekend. No, exactly. He was super bitchy. So he would sit around and say like, because he was very funny, and so he would have this kind of gentle malice where he would sit around saying really you know nasty <laughs> things about people. Yeah, yeah. and then exactly. Well, he was horrified because it turned out that his sister Alice was writing them all down in her diary. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then the diary, yeah, and then after she died, the diary was going to get published. And he was like, but this is dreadful because it's it just basically, yeah, it was like you know, being caught out on Alice Twitter or something. Exactly. <laughs> saying, you know, revealed, you know, your email got hacked and all the terrible things you said. <laughs> and he said, Angelina Jolie. You know, doesn't really work at all. Exactly. God, she's so stupid. Uh, you know, the most, the most yeah. mortifying uh, outcome of all. So, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm also, you've said, I mean, I think it's, you've said, Tobin's the master is Tobin's master yeah, so yeah. indeed yeah. and that you know so everybody has different genres. exactly and so it came you know that book came out the same year mm-hmm. as David Lodge's author author which is also it was such a weird coincidence this happened that both of these great writers were working on a book not only about James but about James's theatrical failure in 1895 with the play Guy Domville mm-hmm. and both both Toybean and David Lodge wrote novels that were about that crisis in James's life in, and it came out they came out in the same year so interesting so interesting and Lodge version is is the more celibate James um, less kind of actively desiring mm-hmm. than uh, Toy Beans but Lodge's James is also more repressed he also just kind of doesn't admit it um, whereas I tend to think it was something between the two that he knew it but he just got on with things and the I mean the, um, the idea of the unlived life also is uh, it doesn't have to be it can be about regret, but it doesn't actually have to be a tragedy. Mm. I mean, uh, Lambert Struthers, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't go, he doesn't suddenly dissolve into some great sense of tragedy. He just acknowledges that yeah. 
he he only has only realized what his life could have been. And really. and part of the reason that he stays in Paris, he says, and again, this is why he is he's a, so much a more subtle and interesting person than the Newsoms who become the antagonist because they have they have very mean imaginations, Miss Gostry says. They imagine meanly. And that is the great moral yeah. failure in James's universe. Strether imagines generously. And one of the thing, one of the reasons he stays in Paris is because he says it's his tribute to youth. Not because he's trying to recapture his own youth, but because he wants to help Chad and Madame de Vionnet enjoy theirs. And he's actually trying it's to generosity. help them. generosity. And he, and so, yeah, it's not, he doesn't see it as a tragedy. And he, I mean, it's poignant. Um, and there is a great, uh, uh, we've been talking about sex, so this will sound like a loaded word, but there is a great <laughs> climax in the novel where um, he realizes the truth of what's been happening. Um, and that is very painful for him. Yeah. Um, but James makes clear that what is painful there, and, and, and this actually speaks to our, our discussion a moment ago about, about what we might think James felt about his own uh, unlived sexual life, is that um, the great pain that Strether feels when he realizes what's been going on between Chad and Madame de Vianney definitively, mm-hmm. um, is he feels emotionally left out. Not sexually. He doesn't feel that he missed his life sexually. And that's why I think that there's... Interesting. Yeah. It, it's, that, it's that he's missed out on intimacy. He's missed out on emotion. Um, he's, he's missed out on a relationship. And, and that is what James see, sees as, the, as what would have been Lambert Struthers' mm-hmm. great pain. To me, there's something almost crass. No, not all, I'm not even qualified. There's something crass. And there's something very much of our era in thinking that everything comes down to sex. And thinking that without sex, you can't have a happy Mm. life. I actually think James, you know, gave up sex and had a happy life (laughs) for the most part. As I say, with these periods of great, you know, of great mental suffering. But, you know, his depression was also triggered by, by, you know, the fact that he was losing all the people that he loved by the First World War, by great calamities and catastrophes. Not necessarily because, you know, he couldn't have sex with the, you know, the hot guy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) One or two, you know. So in a sense, I don't think it. I don't think it does justice to James. Mm. I think it, it. It doesn't serve him well. No, it's reductive. It very very reductive, exactly. And um and so that and and we can point to without you know, it's it's always a, a slippery and dangerous practice to try to use novels to to read an author's psychology, but the fact that James couches Strether's epiphany in emotional terms. Mm. Um, that that is and and that that's it's about loneliness not about sex I think speaks volumes and I think we should extrapolate that um, insight into, in, into saying this is how this is a world this is a perspective sure. this is a worldview um, that James presumably well at least he understands it because there it is so he sh- he must share it on some level because he he's this is how he's thinking about it. I know. I would. I'm. I'm so sorry that I haven't read the ambassadors. I'm. Well, you. I'm going to that. So great. Well, I think I've spoiled the whole plot. But the, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really. I, mean, actually. I, think that's I mean, as you say, James's plots are quite simple. Yeah, it's, it's really not. Simple. It's not really. About, that's not what it's, it's about. not about the plot. It's about. No. It's about these incredible emotional discoveries and the and the uh, interactions the between the people. And, exactly. And and, the, and and there is a great deal of social comedy in it. There, as I say, it's a comedy of errors. So there's a lot of once you realize that all the other characters know what's going on and Strether doesn't, it becomes a roar funny i mean what's what stopped me reading I mean, I, I don't think any, anybody could come close to anyone that i know come close to your your very catholic reading of of james well contra bean has read every word that he but, wrote yeah. so which well, i cannot claim so <laughs> well, you didn't have you read you've read his letters though haven't you i've read his published letters but published he, the man has ten thousand unpublished letters in his archive teeny tiny writing no it's huge it's huge and loopy but it's it's undifferentiable so it's just one loop after another and it's just it's so difficult to read it's this insane scrawl and i don't know who these scholars are who can read this stuff there's a, um, a wonderful James scholar called Philip Horne who's at King's and he's um, he and, and Adele who I mentioned earlier Lee and Adele are the two editors of, of James's letters and I don't know how they did it but so there are about 2,000 of James's letters that have been published sure. and I've read those and there's, um, the there's 10,000 that haven't been and I have not read those I tried I went to the archives <laughs> and I was like this is not going to work not <laughs> this, like, this is not for me somebody yeah. else can do this I'm, I'm not this kind of scholar <laughs> I'm the dilettante what, kind but, so I would say the but I mean, yes, this idea of James being difficult is not. I'm no. not. I'm not alone in this. Yeah, I mean, what's no. Um, no? He's very difficult. This this is a brilliant thing in your introduction where the Duchess of Sutherland goes. Oh, I really can't get into your book. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it. Can I read <laughs> yeah, it? Because I absolutely love it. Because so, I kind of took great courage from. Yeah, that. no, absolutely. That was why I put it in. I thought everybody should take courage from. It. In fact, I think I say that right. Is that the reader yeah. can take the reader exactly. of this book? Because you made this book sound so enchanting and so <laughs> and so wonderful. And so the word uh, wonderful. 
It's a yeah. wonder. He uses the word wonderful, wonderful. all the way through it. Um, so here's what I don't want now to kind of go. I just find Joe yeah. very difficult because so, his senses go forever. Exactly. So I think there's a couple of, of but I'll, so I'll read this little thing. Read this. Read it. And then models. and then I'll give my kind of top tips for for finding your way into James. Um, so when the Duchess of Sutherland told James she was struggling with the ambassadors, he offered some epistolary advice that might help any reader first approaching the novel. So this is what James says to the Duchess of Sutherland. Take, meanwhile, pray the ambassadors very easily and gently. Read five pages a day. Be even as deliberate as that, but don't break the thread. The thread is really stretched quite scientifically tight. Keep along with it step by step, and then the full charm will come out. I want the charm, you see, to come out for you. So convinced am I that it's there. Um, and so, and, and that I think is, is, um, it is good. You read five pages a day and, and then stop. And, and, um, and he, when he says that it's stretched scientifically tight, he means it. He knows what he's doing and that it's very carefully patterned. And, um, and also this idea, I think charm is the perfect word. I find it an incredibly charming novel. I think the thing with James, so first of all, we should have said there's a, there is a, a marked difference between early James and late James. Sure. So one of the ways to get into James is to start reading early yeah, James. Yeah, which is what, basically um, what I've read. Yeah. So. And so, and those are much more straightforward novels. He got more experimental. Well, he, he didn't call it that, but we could call it that. A bit um, like a bit, a bit like a runner going, I can do a 5K, but I really need to do a 10 and a half marathon. Yeah, exactly. I really aspire to I'm just going to push novels. myself. And he's... Um, and that's it. So you can, but you can, exactly, you can work your way up to it by reading the early stuff. And it is a kind of... Um, I always, I always think that, that the analogy of the workout is a good one with any tough writer, that it is like working out. You've got to do calisthenics. You've got to get in shape. You've got to have a flexible brain. You've got to, they're like, they're the, they're like the, the fitness trainer who's like the boot camp fitness trainer. Henry James is like the world's you know, toughest personal trainer for your brain. And he's just going to push it in all kinds of directions it doesn't want to go in because it's accustomed to the directions it usually goes in. But if you go in the directions he pushes you in, your brain will do things you didn't know it could do. I often think that reading James is like having a prosthetic brain. Basically, you borrow the brain of a genius for the for the length of the novel. And it's like, this that sounds great. It's really cool. It's like, oh my God, this is what the world looks like if you're a genius. I don't have these ideas on my own, but James gives me, and I'm like, oh wow, that's an interesting way of looking at things. So I think the thing with James is that, and I also, again, I think this is this analogy holds with, with most challenging writers, is I, and I, I say this to my students a lot, is that, you know, when you learn how to swim, they tell you don't fight the water because if you fight the water, it's harder and the water's stronger than you are. You've got to learn to go with the, go with go the flow. With the You've got to learn that the current is stronger than you and, um, and, and it will hold you up. And same with James. Same with James. You feel like you're drowning at first, and there are all these words, and you don't know what their reference are. And he uses he uses um, negatives and deferrals, and it's an abstract kind of language, particularly in late James. And he literally defers the verb, which in in English is very unusual. So normally you know what's happening fairly early on in the sentence, and then you can kind of follow because there's literally an action. The verb something is happening, and you go, okay, I'm, okay, that's I can I, I, I know you walk but, somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Somebody's walking somewhere. I okay, that's how the novel begins. I don't know who the person is yet. I don't know where they're walking yet, but somebody. Is walking and so I can track what's happening but with James the verb doesn't come until the end of incredibly long sentences and so all you have is a person so you have the person who's here and he's thinking this and there and he was thinking about that and he was looking at that and then he sees that and then he's doing that and then he remembered that and he and he sort of wondered about that and then he said that and then he went for a walk and then you go okay he's walking at last I know what's going on you know and um and so you have to get used to that you you also and 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 some people find it incredibly exasperating um he does like lots of words. He loves words. So you have to like words and you kind of have to just throw yourself open to this kind of plenitude. It is going to be lots and lots of words. But also I think the way it works is that you can kind of drift with him. You don't have to worry about whether you follow every sentence, particularly at the beginning. Just kind of, it is like, so, so I say it's like swimming. Just keep swimming. And eventually it, you'll start to get the drift and you'll be like, okay, I didn't really know what was going on at the beginning, but now I'm starting to catch up. And, and then the other thing is to read, read between the lines and read for euphemism. Um, the, the key here is to, is to realize that Lambert Strether is not interpreting his environment correctly. And so as there, it's a bit like Emma in Jane Austen, right? That, um, but James is doing it with a lot more words than, than yeah. Austen is. So he gets, so all those words get in the way literally of our, of our being at first being able to see the joke, but eventually they amplify the joke and they, and they add all of these nuances and subtleties. But basically the way that, that you can think when you first read Emma, that Emma is great and Emma's right and gradually Austin's irony dawns on mm. you and you realize that Emma is interpreting her world wrong and everybody else around her keeps telling her you're doing this wrong and she's not listening. Um, and it's uh, there's a similar irony at work here, a similar dramatic irony that Strether's interpretation of his world is incorrect. Particularly Miss Gostry, she's basically our kind of touchstone. 
So I find it helpful to, ne- to like, you know, Miss Gostry is like the buoy who, who I kind of swim toward. And so she's, she's the anchor. But she's not going because she can't be the person to disabuse Strether of his illusion. Yeah. So she's never going to come right out and say it. But basically, she's kind of teasing him all the time. And she thinks he's she thinks he's sort of wonderfully absurd. And she's just like, I can't believe... So basically, you imagine her just kind of rolling her eyes going, I can't believe this guy doesn't realize they're having an affair. But she thinks it's sort of delightful. It's so, it's so cute. It's so charming. <laughs> Innocent abroad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So tips for reading Henry James. Mm. The Henry James' own advice. Five, five pages, pages a day. day. No more. If... No more. No more. <laughs> but then don't, but don't lose the but thread. But don't lose the thread. Don't, don't put it down and go away. Yes. Uh, five pages a day. Five every day. Five pages a day, every day. Until yeah. you've finished it. Uh, if you need some training, get into the early work first, mm-hmm. and you know, do your yeah, uh, your calisthenics short, short yeah. run. Do your couch to couch to five k. Exactly, lots of Washington, steps. Washington, take lots of Washington steps. Square. And couch to 5K. <laughs> we can have a James Fitbit. <laughs> How many we words should, a day? We should have a James Fitbit. Um, I did my twenty thousand words a day. <laughs> Remember, if you're finding it difficult, that he does put the verb at the end, <laughs> and just go with it. Treat it like a. Uh, go with the current yeah. and yeah. the current will eventually carry you exactly and don't worry too much um, if a, an individual sentence sort of drifts past you you haven't missed anything yeah. that you Just can't pick up keep later swimming yeah and, and part of his technique is that he will repeat things <laughs> so, <laughs> so which helpful exactly actually. that's what he means so he'll give you he'll give you these points again and you'll go yeah. oh okay I start to see and him. then specifically with the ambassadors part of the joys is, is the is the youth is the youth is the reading between the lines? Yeah, euphemism. and I think that um, that going to it with an expectation that he's being funny helps. Approaching yeah. it as a comedy of manners, knowing that it's intended to be funny, um, I think liberates you as a reader to think. Because sometimes, particularly with his tone, it's so sly that you're sort of not sure. It's like, is this supposed to be serious, or what are we supposed to? So it, it gives you a kind of uh, um, a position and a, mm-hmm. and a perspective. To say, okay, you know, as far as I'm concerned, anyway, I mean, obviously it's a very poignant book and there are lots of serious things in it, but it's basically James's tongue is in his cheek. And if you read it with that, imagining him kind of twi- twinkle in his eye as, as, um, as he's telling this story, or imagine him in that country house that you were talking about, and he's telling this funny story about this guy um, who didn't really get what was going on um, when he came to Paris, but who actually is quite sweet and everybody is fond of him. And so there's that, there's, um, there, it's a genial kind of irony um where where clearly we're all very fond of strether but um james james keeps calling him poor strether <laughs> so in his preface like, poor strether he doesn't but you kind of want to pat him on the poor strether you didn't get it did you <laughs> oh wonderful sarah chats well that was really thank fun. you very much thank that was you huge fun See? i'm going i'm i want to the rest of the day off and get stuck into my five pages i'm on a i'm on a mission to make everybody to say that we're allowed to be irreverent about james we're allowed to it's, we're allowed to giggle about james it's absolutely fine it's a revelation to me that james is funny mm. actually and, and I think having hilarious. talked to you i'm now i can com- i can completely see it now yeah. actually and even in what in the stuff that i read yeah. i can i can now understand yeah. it this great genius that yeah. must be worn very heavily exactly no, I don't think that's doing him any favours he, would, know, he, would, have, exactly. he would have liked us to approach him with a sense of humour and uh, and a sense of joyous surprise what's what's the joyful surprise Joy, going the to be? joyful surprise well yeah. the joyful surprise in the ambassadors I'm, I hope I'm you like it. I want to do it thank you <laughs>